0: I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. Well, Happy New Year, and welcome back to the From My Angle podcast. I hope you and your family enjoyed a joyful and restful holiday break. The new year has arrived, and with it has come some of the uncertainties we faced since March 2020. The recent COVID-19 Omicron variant surge accompanies our return to campus post-holiday break. While conditions are substantially better than they were at the inception of the pandemic, we nevertheless confront questions about how best to operate the school while promoting community well-being. Regardless of one's opinions on vaccination or masking, I believe everyone shares a longing for an end to the pandemic. The moment's context then reframes the reconnect and reset theme we've explored in the From My Angle podcast episodes dating back to August, <laughs> perhaps naively. I chose the 10 episodes of the fall to lead us through an exploration of reconnection, believing our trajectory to a resumption of normal interactions with the people in places that matter to us would be a more linear one. While we have experienced much more normalcy in recent months, we have yet to fully reconnect or at least come to feel comfortable with what reconnection means in every circumstance. Do I wear a mask here or not, inside here or not? I suspect our occasional frustration with the halting on-again, off-again experience with daily engagements will persist into the beginning of 2022. Nevertheless, with the dawn of the new calendar year, I had planned to shift the focus of our conversations from reconnecting to resetting, having reestablished relationships with people and places again, my theory went, we could then wonder about how aspects of life might differ post-pandemic. Again, in retrospect, perhaps I was guilty of some wishful thinking. Maybe we still have a way to go before we will understand how post-pandemic life will have evolved, if at all from life in March of 2020. Still, we have emerged enough from the depths of the darkest learn and work from home phase of the pandemic existence to consider what indelible impressions and practices and mindsets the pandemic may be making on us and on the institutions we favor. We will begin our conversation then in a familiar place for a podcast hosted by an educational leader, schools and education, and I'm excited to start our exploration with as knowledgeable a voice on independent schools as I know. John Gula has served as the executive director of the Edward E. Ford Foundation since 2013. The E. E. Ford Foundation seeks to improve secondary education by supporting United States independent schools and encouraging promising practices within them. Since its inception in 1957, the foundation has provided over $125 million to over 900 schools. Previous to joining ee Ford, John spent over 35 years in independent schools in New Orleans, New York City, and Minneapolis, concluding his service with 14 years as headmaster at the Blake School in Minneapolis. John and I have been professional acquaintances since the mid-1990s, and Parrish was honored to receive a Leadership Award from the Ford Foundation in 2016 to launch the Center for Transformational Leadership. I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Gola. Well, welcome back and happy new year, listeners of the From My Angle podcast. My loyal listeners, I hope your holiday was terrific. We've come back to some conditions different than we may have anticipated, but nevertheless, excited for the second half of the school year to begin. And with it, the second half of our year-long podcast theme, Reconnect and Reset. Those 10 episodes in the fall were terrific ways to celebrate coming back to some more normalcy here at Parish and to look at what reconnecting means in ways similar and different to what we experienced before the pandemic. As the new year turned here, the new calendar year, I wanted to explore then resetting how might life in ways that we are familiar with be different after the pandemic changed fundamentally or temporarily. And so it is today that I wanna begin the conversation in an area that of course is obvious to those of us that love parish and schools and or a podcast led by a head of school, education, and schools. How has the pandemic perhaps fundamentally or temporarily reset how schools like ours operate? So I am thrilled to be joined by a good friend of mine, an acquaintance of uh, mine professionally back into the 90s, and a friend of Parrish as well, John Gullah, who serves as the executive director of the Edward E. Ford Foundation, has done that since 2013, but preceding his work at the Ford Foundation, which seeks to improve secondary education by supporting independent schools in the United States, like Parrish, who are pursuing promising practices. John was a longtime independent school teacher and administrator, over 35 years in schools across the United States, New Orleans, New York City, Minneapolis, where in his final 14 years, he served as the head of the Blake School. So John, thank you for coming on to visit with us today about how the world of education might be different post-pandemic. I hope your new year is off to a good start. Uh, David, thank you very, very much. Uh, uh,
1: It's a pleasure to be with you. And yes, the the, the year's off to uh, a good start, a little surprising that that we're wrestling with uh, yet another wave, but um, it's good to be with you and I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: Now, John knows schools not just from his own experience, but His foundation over the last uh, um, years since its inception, 1957, has given out over $125 million to over 900 schools. This man travels across the country and spends a lot of time visiting places like ours. And so he is an expert uh, to offer some wisdom to us. But, John, before we get into that conversation, I'd like to offer my guests this opportunity to share with listeners how they most comfortably identify themselves when meeting someone for the first time so we've already established you're an educational leader teacher you are a dad a spouse a Red Sox fan as some may glean from your uh new <laughs> Yankee accent of yours uh, but how is it that John most likes to identify himself with meeting someone new I, I certainly start with the,
1: the family with with mm-hmm. my I've been married for over 35 years to to my uh, teacher wife andrea uh, as you mentioned, we, we have two sons. Uh, as of last July, now both married. Uh, younger son and his wife live in Los Angeles. So older son and his wife live in Bogota, Colombia. Um, wish they, they were closer, but but no. uh, it turns out that that if you raise children <laughs> to think that the, the world can be theirs, they, they actually take you up on it and, and uh, believe that. And, awesome. Um, I, I, I come from a, f- a family uh, of educators. I mean, my, my mom was a, a, a fifth grade public school teacher. My dad was a shopkeeper. But, but then later, uh, when I was a child, went back to, to graduate school, became a teacher, then, then a, an assistant principal, and then a principal, and for a brief time, a mm-hmm. superintendent in a public mm-hmm. school system outside of, of Boston. Uh, but maybe even more, more significantly, Uh, in this large uh, uh, Italian-Irish-Catholic family outside of Boston, I think almost every aunt and uncle was involved in public school education, a first grade Mm -hmm. teacher, a school nurse, an athletic director, Uh, so I grew up in in a world of of educators and and didn't initially think I was going to join the family business, (laughs) but uh, I've had no no second thoughts. I, I think of myself as, a, as an insatiably curious guy. Mm-hmm. I, I like to, 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 to learn, I like to read, I like to travel, I like to uh, challenge myself and, and find new things. And and for a long period of time, I was a, a suffering Red Sox fan uh, from the 1967 uh, defeat at the hands of the Cardinals, uh, until they finally broke the curse of the Bambino and won a series But That's one of the ways in which uh, Dave and I know each other because uh, he's a Mets fan, so we, we, we have uh, uh,
0: some suffering in common. Yeah, no, que- no question. And I did add to your suffering in, in 86, of course, when uh, when that ball rolled. I don't want to talk about that. Flag, I, mean, <laughs> I don't want to go there. And we do share in, in common this background of, of families that are very ensconced in education, yours on the public side, which is ironic that you ended up coming then over to independent schools. But uh, certainly, in my experience too, it very much forms our identity of, of how we see the world and, and feel the world through through schools. And so it is that now you've found yourself leading um, th- this foundation, uh, an esteemed foundation in the world of independent schools, as I referenced around since 1957. But I think it's really important to provide the listeners some background on, on what the e. e Ford Foundation does. So t- tell us a little bit about uh, a little bit about the foundation. Sure, happy to. As you mentioned. Uh began
1: in the, the late 50s, but for the first decade or, or so, it was more informal. Uh, mm. And it was only after the, the foundation had developed some momentum. And then after the, the untimely death of, of the founder that it, it really launched into a, a, a more ambitious um, effort to, to support independent schools. There are certain criteria for uh, schools to, to seek support from the foundation They need to, to, to be U.S. based, they have mm-hmm. to have a 9th through twelfth grade division. We work with K to twelve schools, mm-hmm. but we wouldn't work with K to six or K to eight, as in terms of, of the trust that established the, the foundation. Mm-hmm. Schools need to be committed to, to serving a diverse population. Uh, they have to to have been good stewards of any past philanthropy. Uh, there are, are, as you had mentioned, the, we've distributed some 125 million dollars to maybe 900. Mm-hmm. Uh, or so different independent schools through well over 2,200 individual grants. Schools can come uh, back to us multiple times. In fact, some schools have received uh, 12, 15 grants from us over the the 60 plus years that we have been around. Mm -hmm. There are uh, several different grant making cycles that we have. We have what what we call traditional grants. That's sort of the bread and butter, what we've always done. And one of the things that distinguishes that component of the foundation's work is that we don't um, indicate to schools areas where they should seek funding for traditional grants. We say to schools that they know better than we possibly could, how we might best be able to help them. So we're agnostic with regard to the focus of the the project that they might bring to us for potential funding,
2: Mm -hmm. at least on the traditional
1: grant side. We much later in the foundation's life began an educational leadership grant. That was when you and I Mm -hmm. last worked together and and was the occasion that brought me to to see Parrish and to to Mm -hmm. witness the good work going on there firsthand. Uh, But that Those grants, we often do express an interest and have some expectations that uh, an educational leadership grant can benefit the school seeking that support, but it will have promise uh, to benefit education more broadly. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have uh, special grants, things that that we'll do because the, the mission of the foundation is simply to support independent schools. So we will make grants outside of that traditional or educational leadership grant, as we did for supporting um, an effort known as the MTC, Mastery Transcript Consortium, a way to to assess students without using the traditional transcripts uh, and grades that that, uh, are the um, ubiquitous uh, method of of student assessment throughout the the U.S. But there are other special grants. Recently, and I don't know whether you know this, but there's now on the SAIS website, a, a head search database that, that's meant to, to introduce a degree of transparency
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, to uh, head of school um, transitions and the consultancies that work in them. But we uh, provided some funding and SAS uh, uh, graciously, Deborah Wilson and, and uh, others working with uh, some of her staff, uh, Vince Watchhorn launched that, But there are a number of other mm-hmm. special grant programs beyond those.
0: Yeah, it's just really impressive, the scope there. Uh, I don't know of any other foundations that work exclusively with independent schools, and one one cannot be anything but impressed by $125 million of philanthropy directed to the cause of, of schools like ours. So I think it's just uh, incredible and impressive, and Parish is grateful to partner with the 12 uh, other independent schools here in, in Dallas and SMU-Simmons to launch the Center for Transformational Leadership and, and offer leadership development programs to uh, over a over, uh, hundred educators from dozens of schools across the, the country. So um, we, we were served well, uh, well by it and thankful for it. To the topic at hand then, let's um, do before and after, you know, a reset uh, speaks to the notion that uh, something has, has changed and, and shifted the landscape. And so let's go back to the days before uh, March, 2020, You travel to literally hundreds, as I referenced, independent schools across the United States. So at that time, how would you encapsulate the pressures independent schools were feeling and perhaps the opportunities they were exploring before the cataclysmic interruption of the pandemic? Sure. I I don't know
1: if this is true for for you or for some of your your listeners, but but there's been a significant uh, time distortion. Uh, for me uh, as a result of, of uh, the pandemic. And it's easy for me to to think back B.C., before COVID, uh, mm-hmm. because the fact that Friday, March 13th, 2020, uh, was was the last school visit that I made uh, for some 18 months.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I just want to return for a second, then I'll pick up the, the thread for, the, for your question. But it is true that, that while I worked at, at four independent schools and I thought those four schools were... Uh, quite distinct and and, and Mm -hmm. contrasted with each other. Um, It's only since I've been working at the foundation that I have come to understand that those four schools where I've worked all sit sort of cheek by jowl in the same tiny little part of the NAS spectrum. I mean, they were all pre-K through 12th grade, uh, co-educational, non-sectarian day schools with with pretty stable finances and the luxury of, of significant selectivity and admission. Um, And this uh, last decade, almost decade that that I've been exposed to uh, such an array of of schools Mm -hmm. has um, reinforced for me uh, the absolute conviction that there's no Mm -hmm. one right way to do this. And as enthusiastic a proponent of independent schools as I was even before the foundation, it has increased Mm -hmm. my belief that independent schools, uh, entities, communities, of educators, of, of, of leaders, of parents, of, of, of teachers, of students that are able to, to form their own mission mm-hmm. and then pursue that in their own way as uh, part of what's kept me mm-hmm. uh, connected to, to this particular component of the educational ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But back to that, that point of inflection at <laughs> that, that uh, mm-hmm. very significant uh, moment. Prior to that, I was spending a certain amount of time. People, I think, believe that somehow all of these school visits, all the frequent flyer miles and time visiting, somehow there's an accretion of wisdom. And I'm not sure that that's the case. But I am sure that it's given me a perspective that I didn't have before. And I was worried about a number of independent schools. Mm. before the, the, the pandemic, and, and this needs just a little bit of history that I think not everyone who, who may be a part of an independent school community necessarily thinks back in the history, but uh, independent schools, private schools preceded any public schools in, mm-hmm. in, in our country. There were, in fact, there. Are, I visited just this fall, I visited one school that was established in 1689, another in 1725, um, and I, I think there were, there were there were four schools that I visited in a, a quick succession in the fall, and the youngest of those was a 1910 school. Um, but but uh, independent schools have this this rich history. But before the pandemic, I, I was concerned, given heightened competition, for a good bit of the time from the common school movement in the 19th century uh, through the recent history. Um, There were basically three classes of schools uh, that that families could consider for their their children. Uh, There were public schools, often referred to as the free option, but I remind everybody they're not free, they're actually paid for, uh, mainly through local property taxes, though increasingly uh, states are taking a greater role in that. Uh, But that is what Horace Mann and the common school movement Uh, delivered to us and we became a a model for a good bit of of the world in that universally available uh, publicly financed uh, uh, education. Uh, There was that option. There was the independent school option Mm -hmm. and a a religiously affiliated faith-based set of schools. Mm -hmm. Um, That really was what existed uh, through um, the 20th century. The the, very Later stages of the, the um, 20th century charter schools actually began in Minnesota. Had the first charter schools, <laughs> but but now there are this competition that did not historically exist uh, with for-profit schools and, and homeschooling and and uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, a variety of choices that, that parents have that they did not historically have. All of this is to say that 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 i had been trying to develop. Some metaphors for helping those who might be interested in understanding what was happening in this larger independent school world, uh, what uh, are called a three bucket heuristic. I mean, there there were independent schools that, by dint of their resources or or demand, uh, were pretty comfortable Mm -hmm. um, and had no real concerns about their their future. Uh, There were were, uh, what I called bucket three schools that, that recognized that there were some challenges, but they weren't doing anything about it. They thought the challenges were not systemic, uh, were, were temporary, and they'd been around for a while. And if they just kept on keeping on, the good times were just around the corner. Mm-hmm. You know, the bucket two schools that recognized there were challenges and that they needed to, to begin to try to, to rethink um, mm-hmm. what they were doing. And I do think even pre-pandemic, there was lots of creative thinking being brought to bear on schools. And there were uh, courageous educational leaders, educational communities beginning to to rethink how Mm -hmm. we approach this uh, and to begin to diversify the the, the array of offerings to take the the three basic offerings that were then complicated by by a number of other competitors and then uh, diversify even further Mm -hmm. um, philosophically, pedagogically um, that it's exciting.
0: It seems to yep.
1: me. So that was all sort of the the where things were in in,
0: in my mind pre pandemic. Yeah, um, you used it and you used the phrases quite often around you know a state of educational evolution or educational inertia, so to speak. And I would agree with you. Like I think Paris was in the second bucket. Like we were a school that was young and aspirant and aware of the changing landscape of the complex global society, as our mission statement calls it, and thus were. By the very title we used for our strategic uh, academic visioning, trying to reimagine how school worked, make it less standardized, more personalized, more learner centered, uh, 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 more connected to real world and relevant issues, more skills based, not so content driven. Oh, you know, sort of uh, some of the quick summary of what we were up against. Right. And trying to do. And that's right smack where we were in March of 2020, deep into that work, beginning to roll things out. And, and I would say we were at a point of educational evolution. But I hear you saying the bucket one schools, um, y- you know, were in a state of educational inertia, because they were comfortable, they were very well established. And the bucket three schools were in a state of educational inertia, because they thought, eh, we'll be okay, it'll be, you know, things will just work out. So it's, an, it's a really helpful heuristic, um, I think that, um, you know, we can take into then what happened over the next 21 months, which is, you know, schools, private and public, like this generational challenge. We uh, had to figure out how to virtualize and go hybrid, multiple platforms. Meanwhile, you know, amidst it all, national tumult around issues of racial injustice come to the forefront. You have this college admission scandal, right? So you get this ugly underside of the college preparatory school industry, And amidst all of that, in some cases emanating from it, is this, uh, I think, historic, you've called it epical uh, mental health crisis for our students and, and now I would say even for our employees. So as you then now think about reflecting on the pressures that circumstances like these have had placed upon independent schools. How, how do you summarize, perhaps, with another heuristic, or, or or what have you? Like, how do you summarize the pressures that the pandemic has brought to bear in the last 21 months?
1: There's an awful lot in what you just said to to, to try to unpack. but let me let me try, and then you'll, you'll help me if, if there were things you wanted me to address that that, that I missed and all of that. I, I'd start by, by by saying that that uh, even pre-pandemic and the BC before COVID time. I mean, there was a pattern
2: uh,
1: that I was recognizing that, that some schools in certain uh, markets, uh, economically robust uh, cities um, around the, the, the country with extraordinary uh, demand for some of the, the independent schools, that there, there was a, a certain educational inertia. Uh, brought about in part because the, the the governing bodies of some of those independent schools um, had a, a notion that it ain't broken. Uh, so, any, any uh, energy being invested to try to change was was often counted with a what, "Why are we trying to fix something that that seems to be working? We have uh, amazing demand. Uh, we, we've got kids uh, who seem to, to be thriving." Uh, where the uh, Philanthropy is, is, is through the roof. And all all the, the, the metrics that one might use um, were to some of these the schools suggesting that, that it was uh, arousing success. But as you, you indicate, uh, there are a lot of us who, who see some of the, 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 the challenges of what we have done to ourselves, the kind of intense competition and uh, unhealthy behaviors, even pre-pandemic that existed, uh, within certain components of the independent school world that set about a, a sort of uh, almost unattainable uh, set of goals for some ambitious kids that needed to, to, to gain admission to uh, Stanford or Bowdoin uh, to, to, in order to have a, a good life. And it just isn't the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was noticing the, the pattern that, that some of the, the most innovative, creative, uh, exciting uh experimentation that was going on uh was often clustered uh in in areas where it was experimentation by necessity Mm -hmm. uh, where there were schools that that were uh definitely the the bucket two schools were were trying to to rethink themselves because they came to know that it was very much an evolve or die that, that you know continues to, to, to be true, and I want to be careful in all of this, not to, to be too specific because there are always exceptions to that, but there are some markets, uh, I'd say Philadelphia and, and, and Baltimore and, and St. Louis and, and Cleveland and Detroit are, are some that, that come to, to mind where I think it can be argued that, that historically there are a surfeit of really fine independent schools and I'm not sure that there continued to be a sufficient number of full pay families in the Cashman area, at least of day schools, boarding's a very different story, uh, to keep uh, the, the financial flywheel of all of those schools humming. Um, but I do think that even long before the, the, the pandemic, there were, were, were schools that were recognizing that we know so much more about neuroscience Mm -hmm. than was the the, the case uh, a century ago. Some of the progressive aspects uh, of education, current practitioners sometimes think of being invented Mm -hmm. uh, in the current day, and maybe they haven't read their Dewey, um, Mm -hmm. but but there are uh, historical precedents for some aspects of, of how we might rethink education that is more. Personalized, But but even John Dewey didn't know what we now know about right. the way in which the brain works. So there were schools that certainly were um, beginning to, to rethink um, the approach. And there I see critical mass being achieved by, by um, a, a network of, of schools willing to see a different future. You and I know, because we've talked some about this, but there, there are those who are unaware of the role of the Committee of Ten in, in the late 19th century in establishing what uh, now is the sort of uh, seemingly uh, God-given uh, curriculum that we yeah. follow. Um, at about the same time that, that, <laughs> that, that letter grades came into being, I sometimes will have a conversation with with teachers in some of these schools that I visit, and we'll just ask them, you know, when when do you think schools began to, to, to give letter grades, A, B, C, et cetera. And they'll, they'll stop, and, and some will say, well, weren't they you know, carved on the tablets that Moses brought down from the Mount? Uh, and no, the answer is uh, uh, late late 19th century, Mount Holyoke College, blah, 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 blah. But I, I think that there's this willingness um, at present to, to rethink uh, some of those things. And we, we see it's not limited to, to us as a country. It's some uh, really fascinating... Uh, curricular reforms taking place, for example, in Finland, uh, mm-hmm. in, in a phonological way of approaching the, the, the curriculum. Um, but but you were raising this question that that so I, I I believe that that one of the things that happened in the the pandemic is it, it accelerated a number of things that were already taking place, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, as the, the the hackneyed phrase that. We're, became familiar to all of us, laid bare things Mm -hmm. that that, uh, that many of us uh, recognized in the periphery of our consciousness, but didn't see quite as starkly Mm. as we did uh, in the the pandemic. And of course, there has been, as as you allude to, um, that summer of 2020, a racial reckoning uh, that really resulted in in independent schools um, questioning a number of their practices and some necessary Mm self-examination. But I, on this particular point, just want to to, to, uh, take a a brief little tangent that it's my belief that on the whole, um, many independent schools are in fact bastions of of great privilege, but that's not all they are. Mm -hmm. And I have, have uh written and, and 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 spoken often about the, the 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 danger of a single story to to use the uh, achibe uh, uh um maxim uh that i think there's a danger of a single story for independent schools because that's not all they are they, they some schools can be bastions of great privilege but they're also incredibly effective um Mechanisms of, of, of social mobility for for some mm-hmm. children that, that, that open up whole worlds to them, the amount of, of, of uh, need-based financial aid that, that independent schools give out. So there's a, there's a lot of, of of real good that happens, and there are those who question the legitimacy of, of independent schools, and I'm not among mm-hmm. them. I mean, I think there is a, an important place in our ecosystem for the kind of, of diversity of of offerings in in independent schools are are these um, laboratories often for different uh, pedagogical approaches and and others. So all of that is to to, to say the pandemic did a number of things for us. One of the things I think it did is it taught a a significant number of schools um, that what we thought was impossible really wasn't impossible. If you'd said to schools pre-pandemic, all right, you're going to need within a couple of weeks to shift all of your instruction online. People would have said, well, we can't do that. That's an impossible task. Well, was it challenging, difficult, problematic? Yes, yes, yes. But we did it. And in fact, I I think uh, this is part of my belief is that the nimbleness of independent schools, I would say from my point of view, um, in the the whole K to 16 educational world, I think um, independent upper schools pivoted more effectively than almost any other component of that educational world. Uh, There's evidence for that. There there, there, there are a number of schools that that, uh, received an admission COVID bump, uh, where populations that were concerned uh, with how the the local public schools had, had managed that that decided that, that they were going to find options for, for their children um, in schools that seemed more quickly to be able to, to uh, adapt uh, to some of the, the needs that we had in order to stay healthy and safe. Um, so, I mean, I think that, that some of those um, aspects in the early stages of the pandemic struck me as, as an argument um, helping independent schools see that the, Um, um, long-held practices could be rethought, at least in in some ways.
0: Yeah, it sort of removed the excuse to say we can't evolve or to just rest on tradition, um, for sure. I'm of the hypothesis, though, and I know you and uh, our friend Grant Lickman have have, uh, hosted these virtual seminars relatively recently called If Not Now, Pushing Our horizon so schools will thrive and had experts from entrepreneurial education, public schools, private schools on them. But I'm kind of of the hypothesis that the rapid change required by the pandemic, you know, paired with the uh, instability instability and, and uncertainty of the world has actually at least temporarily sent us back to a point of inertia. In other words, the tolerance for change in our schools, um, ha, has, has uh, among our parent body, our faculty and staff, even our students, uh, very much diminished because they just want school like it used to be. So, you know, refute that, either with the perspectives you've learned from these other educational experts and entrepreneurs that you've hosted in these seminars, uh, or your own thinking, do, do you feel like we're going to enter a period of uh, accelerated Evolution now on the reset, or a temporary period of inertia due to the fatigue and uncertainty and challenge that we've just experienced.
1: It's a good hypothesis,
0: but here would be my take. I think
1: there is um, there's a lot of fear, uh, and there there's there's an acute um, longing for. Uh, the world that we'd known. And so some of, of this um, desire uh, to simply reachieve what we had prior to, to March of 2020 is, I think, a, a result of exhausted constituencies, certainly uh, parents and, and teachers and school leaders and but everyone. I mean they're, they're, I think the tank is, is empty and, and, and people want to, to be done. With this, and and one of the things that that you do if you're you feel like you're drowning and and, and failing is is grab on some lifesaver, and if that lifesaver is 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 you know what had been, I think there'll be a lot of, of that, but I don't think it will last. I think yeah. for what we'll see um, uh, five years, ten years out from that, uh, to give me a, a particular example. Uh, I'm sure not parish, but but you could imagine some schools where there were faculty members whose technological proficiency uh, was mixed. Um, They may not have been the the most deft utilizers of the tools of technology in their um, classes, Um, but there has been, uh, by necessity, an incredible education on the part of everyone on how to use some aspects of technology, even if, if, uh, it's not going to, to, to result in the same kind of, of virtual learning. Mm-hmm. But even the, the, what is possible, uh, those who, who are, are flipping and, and doing um, more um, of the transmission of some information through recordings that they let uh, kids watch on their own and have greater levels of interactivity in class, I mean, that alone. You, you and I both know that, that 20 years ago you could walk through a school and it wasn't uncommon to see kids passively sitting in a classroom looking at a screen right nobody really needs to be doing that if, if, if it's a passive screen watching let kids do that on their own time use the time together uh for, for interactivity either the students with students students with teacher um but uh, some kind of experiential education, some kind of active engagement with uh, their curriculum. Um, so I do think that there are those things, but there are, as, as you and I, I think know, even more fundamental questions that that um, are being raised that I think are long delayed. What is the purpose mm-hmm. of schools? Mm-hmm. What is the purpose of, of education? And, and, and I think it's easier for us to, to, to ask those questions now than it may have been pre-pandemic. But even even pre-pandemic, um, let me, let me uh, quote this, and, and, and so I'll, I'll read it and get it right, but knowing that this part of the conversation might come up. Even pre-pandemic, there was evidence, uh, Gallup had done a poll, and the Gallup poll asked the question, and I quote, how important is a college education today? It was asked in in 2013, and 70% of of the total population responding said, very important. That same population asked uh, six years later, down to 50%. So from 70% to 50% of a college education being very important. Mm -hmm. If you uh, break out the subset of the 18 to 29-year-olds, and this is all still pre-pandemic, that same question uh, went from 74% down to 41%. So, right. I, and, it, it, and it worries me a little bit because to me, um, schools are much, much more than vocational training institutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I do think that, that the purpose of, 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 of schools far uh, outstrips Entry into to, to college and gain full employment. Though so for the two sons referenced earlier, I'm glad they're not living in the basement, that they got a, a, a reciprocal education and that they have found a path for themselves. So all of that's to the good. But most of the, the, the people I know who who go into teaching um, don't do so with the sense that they're they're there so that they can ready uh, their students for. Uh, greater prospects in the job market. They're there in part to help them grow, develop uh interests, passions, skills, belief in themselves. Um, I mean, so I, I think that that there is an opportunity for schools in this this moment in time to to get back to some basic questions about purpose and, and what are we attempting to accomplish. Um and then then perhaps even um, ways in which might allow us to rethink elements that just were not up for discussion prior to this moment in time.
0: Yeah, I'd like to hope so. But I mean, sitting here leading the school still, and then, you know, coming off even a convert conversation, um, you know, like I have with, with Matt Feeney uh, in my last yep. episode of The Close, you know, on, in his book, Little Patoons, just about this sort of sociocultural cultural. Um, on uh, mindset of parents today, and this this comparative parenting, and this 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 you know uh, anxiety that fuels uh, such a drive for uh, whether it's college admissions or elite uh, performance in athletics, that uh, I just wonder if that is going to um, really mitigate against questions like yours. Uh, multiple pathways to success? What is really the purpose of education, a holistic approach to, to independent schools? If we're really ever going to be able to reset that mindset in schools like ours, again, I may be overly pessimistic given the moment, but uh, it, it is it is just hard for me to imagine that grip loosening on the elite uh, and uh, schools uh, like, like Parish, where folks seem to be really transactionally paying for it to deliver their kids to a list of a narrow list, in fact, of select colleges.
1: Right. I, I, I don't know if, if I were were betting on it, Dave, which what outcome I, I know what we both would hope for, but you may be more realistic. I, I do think that that, and I listened to uh, because I, I, I I'm interested in Matt Hean in, in his uh, uh, work and writing, um, but I listened to your discussion uh, with him, and and I don't discount. Um, the, the, the cultural moment that leads to a Varsity Blues scandal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I do think a lot of that is fear-driven. Mm-hmm. I, I do, there are a lot of, of people who realize that one of the um, incontrovertible facts is that uh, free market global capitalism won. I mean, this, this is how the world is evolving and that is concentrating wealth in a smaller and smaller portion of the the, the population. And it seems to me a a pretty safe bet to say that uh, the current millennials and and those that that follow are likely to be, at least in in our country, the first generation that on the whole will not outstrip their parents in terms of of wealth accumulation and even security. Mm -hmm. So there is, I think, a lot of fear on the part of, of parents uh, that, that, that all, of, all of those who know schools know exist when, when a kid comes home and says to the parent, you know, at, at ninth grade, I think I'm, I wanna be a poet when I grow up. Mm-hmm. There's fear in their parents' hearts. Like, oh no, then you'll definitely be living in my basement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but so so I, I recognize that, but I, I think the way it, it does manifest itself um, is that, that there, there's, uh, a disproportionate and unhealthy uh, belief that, that what you need to do for your, your children is to, to, to help them get in you know, to the best elementary school and the best secondary school and the best college and then the best graduate school so they can, can find that security and, 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 and stave off the threats that may be forthcoming. But I think that misses the point that, that all successful parents seem to, to, to ultimately realize is that there's a limit to your control. Yeah, uh, there uh, there has to be a recognition that that eventually you you want your kids to 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 choose a, a life of their own making,
0: right? And define flourishing, define flourishing on on their own terms, not around external you know external metrics. And so I think that's the question. I, I mean, if, if somebody asks me, you know, um, is education or our independent schools or even Will Parish be fundamentally reset or 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 reconceived as a result of what happened during the pandemic, I would say, I agree, for example, with you, that our schools are now better equipped to think about flexibility and nimbleness within our institutions. But my prognosis as to how fundamentally we may change to uh, models that are less standardized, uh, more student focused, more global in their aspiration of what they're producing, in other words, beyond just the college placement list, that um, if not um, skeptical, at least waiting waiting it out. And I guess that's kind of where I sit at this moment in time as we take up the reset theme and, and think about it in the context of, of schools.
1: Well, let me or let me push on your hypothesis just a, a little bit and see what, what your response to this may be. So imagine a, a world uh, 10, 20 years uh, down the, the road where there are families who, who may be uh, considering Uh, parish for their their children uh, and who may have dreams. What if those dreams for post-parish education aren't uh, Rice or or Yale, uh, Mm -hmm. but they're also Google school, Amazon school, Apple school. What if uh, significant $3 trillion capitalization companies decide that the, the most uh, cost-effective way to uh, find future employees is to grow them okay. yourselves.
0: That's right. Um,
1: I, well, right well, that look looked,
0: Pre-pandemic, as a bucket-two school, we renamed our college counseling office the Center for College and Life Planning on the very notion that in that time frame you discussed, I would suggest it even a little earlier than that. Uh, A graduate of parish, one of our present pre-K kids who will graduate in 2035, should be engaged in conversation with their parents and with us about a post-parish pathway that doesn't involve an immediate uh, run to a college brick-and-mortar campus. So like we even accepted that premise then. And I don't know that, again, I don't know that our market right now is of the psychology that they get that or are seeking it. I would be aspirant that in time they would. But again, are the factors of the pandemic or any other factors in our culture right now making me optimistic that our paying customer is going to be that creative in their thinking? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, still, like I'm still holding it out. But I agree with you. Like I think that would be great if our independent schools were, as you say, um, bastions or lighthouses of progressiveness which i think in many cases they have been um i I'd, I'd love to see that um i think we need some help john from our uh friends in higher ed you know ultimately until until the, until the message until the message from there is reset i think it's going to be very difficult for our our customer in independent schools to shift how they approach our product
1: i i, I take no issue with that. I agree yeah. with you. I do, I do think that we labor uh, culturally in, in this country, it may be B&B globally, but I think we, we labor under this sort of false belief that that there exists uh, some kind of true meritocracy and that that uh, what we're engaged in is, is a, a, a means by which that a talent rises uh, without a, a deep recognition of, the, the um, multi-generational privilege that does exist in, in some families and, and does not exist at all in others. And I, I'm really a, 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 a fervid advocate for, for pushing people when they believe that that exists. How do you measure that? What is a measure of merit? Uh, one of the, the, the great explosions uh, uh, that, that happened in our uh, shared professional lifetime is, is that the existence of a word, intelligence, reified a concept people believe that there is something called there, that, that, that the, the word intelligence connotes. How do you measure do that? that right. well, maybe we get uh, Howard Gardner to help us understand that it comes in many different forms and flavors, uh, but even still uh, there, there are limitations to that. And do we need help and assistance from our, our colleagues in higher ed? Absolutely. I mean, I, and this is where I, why I'm a little bit more optimistic on occasion. So up until the pandemic, essentially everyone—there uh, were a few exceptions that were test optional—but when you have the entire state of California deciding that that they're not they're not going back to these this one set of standardized measures, that seems to me to be an opening, and I want to see for all of of the the, the the colleges that that signed on uh, to to making care in common, uh, let's let's reduce the insanity of, of of college admission. It remains to be seen whether there will be schools that will truly try to craft community rather than than simply mm-hmm. uh, engage to an even greater extent in the the rejectivity of their incredible admission pools. So here's a here's a test of that. If you take uh college universities and there are some exceptions to this you take college universities and you rank them by selectivity uh in pre-pandemic you set next to that a ranking of their average sat scores it was almost a perfect correlation um will there be colleges and universities that that say the hell with u.s news and world report and we don't care about those metrics and we actually will try to create community bringing together uh a, a group of students that is evaluated on the, the, a variety of different measures. Yes, they need to, 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 to be able to achieve success in the curriculum of a given school, uh, but not at this rarefied level that in the most selective schools, one of the, the, the thought experiments that always sort of astounds me is you talk to the, the people who work at admission at XYZ school that, that's admitting only 5% or 7%. You could say to them, all right, let's, as a thought experiment, take the class that you admitted and put them aside. Now admit the next class. Would you be able to tell the difference between the two? The answer is no. Right. So that just itself suggests to me that we're expending all of this emotional and and mental health energy um, on on achieving admission where the the very criteria are nonsensical. Not, not, Not clear, yeah.
0: Well, we can hope that such a reset takes place. I mean, a lot of it is, I think, um, to, to be determined. But I'm so appreciative of you sharing. Uh, and you say it's not wisdom accrued. I think it's wisdom accrued. And um, it's rich insight and, and good philosophical thinking, too. And it should challenge us all um, as we return from the pandemic to some degree of normalcy in this next year um, to your very question of, like, what is the pur- what are we doing here? You know, what's the purpose of what we seek from education for our kids? And, and what is it that we want? Um, as I say often around here at parish, how school should feel, not just what school does for you. You know, What do you want this experience to feel like uh, for your child as they go through it? So thanks for provoking our thinking and, and helping us turn from uh, reconnecting to resetting and, uh, and, and moving forward to the start of uh, 2022. It's good to see you and good to be with you. Yeah. My, my great pleasure, Dave. Thank you. Uh, go Mets. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. As we delve deeper into the theme of Reset, our next podcast episode will bring us another in our 50th Anniversary Parish Connection series. We will visit with former parish parents and trustees, Kevin Keith and Don Epperson, who played vital roles in the largest Reset parish has experienced in its history, the grade level and campus expansion. We'll look forward to that conversation and having you back on the From My Angle podcast.